All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you need a handout, we didn't get those out directly um, as you were coming in. So if you need a handout, if you can just slip your hand up, we'll get you one of those as I make a few announcements uh, before we start. So if you need a handout, just slip your hand up, leave it up till we get one to you. The ushers are coming uh, down the center uh, there. Uh, it was a blessing to have uh, David Anderson with us today. Uh, he not only came today, he also came, uh, he came last night to a sermon reading I've been doing on Saturday nights. So uh, I've been reading through my sermon with some unsuspecting, uh, well by now they suspect what's going on, uh, some uh, volunteers, actually they're not volunteers at all, uh, but they're seminary students. And so I invite them to come Saturday night and I read through it and uh, we go section by section. They give input, they give, they ask questions. Uh, they uh, worked through it. And so David was here, uh, our missionary, and he was very helpful. He said, well, well if, you know, maybe it was uh, what, he, what he had to say that came through and was in any way, if any part of the sermon was powerful today, it was what, you know, maybe what he said. Uh, but I do rejoice in his interest and love for the text of Scripture, the Word of God. My goal in those sermon readings, by the way, at the seminary students is not uh, for them to be impressed with sermons, and that's not my goal with you either. I don't want you to say, wow, what a great sermon. I want to get to the text of Scripture. I want it to be clear because that's where God's power is. And so uh, I'm very open to feedback and interaction that these seminary students would give me ideas. They say I'm unclear because I don't want to be fuzzy where the Scripture is clear. And so I, I rejoice in the opportunity that we had together and got to know David a bit more and appreciate him and his ministry in Richmond. It was also a joy, wasn't it, to focus on the faithfulness of God in the midst of temptation. Was that a joy to you today? Yeah, it's great to hear of God's faithfulness to us, even when we feel overcome in, in temptation. God is faithful. He will not uh, allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. And so we got to rejoice in God and his faithfulness today, and uh, I just uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to do that. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this evening... Uh, we come to a new principle of Christian liberty. We've looked at edification. We looked at the promotion of the gospel. We looked at Paul's uh, commitment to discipline in his walk with the Lord at the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, Paul used the example of Israel, uh, as, uh, an, the story of Israel, as an example of the need for caution in the life of a believer. For in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, he makes it very clear, doesn't he? 10 verse 12, Therefore, let he that thinks he stand... Take heed lest he fall. And so Paul is especially imploring the self-professed strong believers in Corinth who thought there was no way they would fall into idolatry that they better be careful because they might slip or fall into idolatry. Um, these, during these weeks, we have worked through these many principles of liberty which come to us through Paul's instruction in chapters 8 through 10. And they're about a very controversial subject in the first century. Eating meat offered to idols. And I want to suggest that there were many different opinions, there were probably differences of opinion on the issue. No doubt there were some believers in the church at Corinth who argued that eating idol meat at feast would allow them good opportunities for evangelism. They would gain more relevancy, or more relevance with the lost at functions, social functions like the dinners held in pagan temples. 
where citizens would make contacts, where they would build their social networks, they would conclude financial agreements, or they would drum up business for their work. In other words, idol temples were the first century Applebee's or golf courses. Uh, some, some believers might argue that way, that, you know, the reason I go down to the idol temple is to be with lost people. Whereas there were others in the church of Corinth who, it, it's very clear in chapter 8 and throughout, that they totally condemned the practice. No, we cannot go to an idol temple and eat idol meat. And so uh, what is interesting to me is that this, uh, would, you know, what might be one of the biggest challenges that we face was a challenge in the first century, and that is to know how to properly relate to lost people. What can we do to relate properly to the world and remain relevant to the culture? And what ideas or values must we never compromise? I think the Bible begins to answer that in places where Jesus, like in John 17, where Jesus begins to tell his disciples that his prayer for them after he's taken out of the world is that they would be in the world, but not of it. And uh, by this and other statements like that in John chapter 17, I think that Jesus is saying that he does not want his disciples to be taken out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one who rules the world and energizes the world system. To be in the world, but not of it, speaks of the fact that Jesus, God, would have us be or remain among the inhabitants of the planet. That's one of the ways you can use the word world, inhabitants of the planet. But not to agree with them or accept their values and ideas of those within the world. We are to reject their fleshly and corrupt philosophies. So to be in, to be among the inhabitants of the world, but not to be of it, to reject their philosophies and corrupt teachings. And that's really helpful for us in the Gospels. In John 17, we read Jesus there. But what does that look like? I mean, can we take it a step farther? I mean, to be in the world but not of it is helpful in principle form. But what does it practically look like in our day-to-day encounters with lost people? And that's where I believe Paul begins to answer that sort of question in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 30. For in these chapters, Paul paints three practical scenarios that the Corinthian believers would face in their day-to-day experience, and he helps them answer questions about whether they can eat idle meat. So if you have a handout here this evening, I think that the principle that Paul is establishing is what I call the principle of flexibility in matters of Christian liberty in gray areas that are not specifically endorsed in the scriptures or not condemned by the scriptures. So in matters of Christian liberty, Paul is teaching them that you can be flexible in the way you relate to lost people and the way you relate to meat which has been offered to idols. And so what he does in verses 14 through 22, he talks about eating meat in the idol temple. Let me just overview this for you for a second and then we'll we'll dig in a little closer. Verses 14 through 22, Paul considers briefly whether or not Corinthian believers have the freedom to go down into the idol temple and eat idol meat in the temple. 
And his answer there is uh, no. The answer there is no. But then you go to verses 23 through 26 in your Bible, and he asks another question. What about idol meat or meat that had been formerly uh, offered to an idol that's available now for cheap at the meat market? Paul, can we go down to the meat market in Corinth and buy meat there? Idol meat. And so Paul's answer there is a little bit different. What's his answer there? Look at verses 23 through 26. He concludes by saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. His basic answer here is yes. So can you go into the idol temple and eat idol meat there? No. Can you go down to the market and buy it there and eat it? Yes. And then next week, we'll also learn that in verses 27 through 30, he he briefly entertains the idea of going down into the home of an unbeliever. And what if someone serves you idol meat, their lost person in their home? What should you do? And Paul's answer there, you thought, to me, so far you think it's a little confusing. It's not. Paul is principally driven, and we'll see that. But his answer about eating meat in an idol temple is, or I'm sorry, in the home of an unbeliever, verses 27 through 30 is, yes, you can eat it. Someone serves it to you, don't ask any questions. Don't ask where it's been. So the answer is yes. However, if someone comes to you and explains that this has been offered to an idol, then my answer is no. Okay, so I think that Paul is teaching the principle of flexibility in matters of Christian liberty. These three discussions teach us the the importance of being flexible ourselves and allowing flexibility to others within the church in how they relate to the lost in amoral situations. Okay, again, I'm not talking about sin issues, but in amoral situations, we must be flexible and we need to allow other believers to be flexible in how they relate these principles and work to the lost as well. So let's go through the scripture. I'll wipe that off there. Uh, Number one, verses 14 through 22, Paul first talks about whether or not eating meat in the idol temple is possible. And he, he will demonstrate here that's strictly forbidden. We learn here that some situations require restraint. Restraint. We cannot do it. So look in your Bible with me at verses 14 through 22. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that uh, that an idol itself is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table on the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, so in verses 14 through 22, Paul points out that believers must avoid pagan worship in idol temples. And he gives them a few things to consider. The way I break these verses up is first, he gives them an important, clear command. Verse 14, flee idolatry. 
Then in verse 15, he appeals to them as to wise people or informed people. I have to admit, when I come to this part in the text, I begin thinking, did Paul switch like his audience? Is he writing to a different church at Corinth now? He's appealing them to wiser, informed people. And this has led some scholars to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe Paul's being sarcastic here. Maybe he doesn't really see them as wise. He's just kind of being sarcastic. But I actually think it's better to say that he's appealing to them as followers of Jesus Christ. And he's appealing to them as wiser, informed people to accept what he is saying and his command as being a wise statement. And the command is, flee from idolatry. Run from it. Don't mess with idolatry and idolatrous practices. Okay. After he gives that important command, answering, can I eat the meat down in the idol temple, this opening premise, he gives an implied reason why they must flee. And it helps us understand the command even more. So in verses 16 through 18, you see the reason that he gives for fleeing idolatry in idol temples and and fleeing uh, or running away from the meat that would be offered there. Um, And he does this, in my opinion, by giving two different examples of religious ceremonies that involve a meal. Remember, one of the, the most beautiful things I remember discovering years ago, maybe three or four years ago when I was going through 1 Corinthians 10, is remember all of those Old Testament quotations that Paul uses? Don't be idolaters like they were. Don't, don't be immoral like they were. Don't tempt Christ. Don't grumble. Well, when it hit me one day that the five Old Testament texts that are used there are all texts that talk about food in their original context. I was amazed at the way Paul knew his Bible. So he says, you know, I've got a problem in Corinth that has to do with meat. Let's, let me think, what are, some, what are some scriptures I can use on them? And he uses his Bible to address meat offered to idols. And so now he's got the similar question. They ask, can we eat idol meat in an idol temple? And now he doesn't use two, two illustrations from the Old Testament. He uses two examples of meals, religious meals. And he draws a premise from it. The first premise is verses 16 and 17. You look in your Bible at that text, and Paul's, Paul's explaining here that eating at the Lord's table is a form of worship. Okay, look with me at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So what Paul's first going to do is he's going to talk about them eating at the Lord's table. And he's going to explain when you eat at the Lord's table, when you gather together, you are worshiping. He describes here, I believe, the union that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. We who are many come together and we're one in body. But especially, I think that he's talking about our union with Christ in this passage. The idea that he stresses over and over again in this passage is the idea of participation or partnership with Christ. So you see, two times in verse 16, he uses the word partaking partnership. It's used in verse 17. It's used in verse 18. It's used in verse 20 and 21. For the Lord's Supper pictures are partaking in Christ, are sharing 
in Christ. In other words, when we come to the Lord's table, it's not a normal meal that we are partaking in. It is a symbolic act indicating our deep relationship or partnership with Jesus Christ. And men and women, I don't know any Christian in the world who would argue that the bread that we drink, or the bread that we eat, and the cup that we drink, that they don't, it doesn't really matter. No, as we participate in the elements of the Lord's table, we worship. You got that? Eating equals worship at the Lord's table. But then go to verse 18, and he says, consider Israel again. And so Paul uses another example of eating at a religious feast or ceremony. And in verse 18, I think that he is describing Old Testament Israel again. Robertson and Plummer, two commentaries, old commentaries on 1 Corinthians, say this. They say, the sacrifices of the Jews furnish a similar argument to show that participation in sacrificial feasts is fellowship with the unseen, with God. Verse 18 in your Bibles might be a reference to the idolatrous feasts of the Old Testament rebellious Israelites in the wilderness, but I think it actually just might be in reference to the the normal daily sacrifices that Israel offered. So look in your Bible one more time at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Paul's asking, you know what, when they gathered and they had those sacrifices, the burnt offering or the fellowship offering of, that Leviticus described, when they would do that and when they would eat together, weren't they fellowshipping with God? Weren't they worshiping? And so the overall point he's making with these two examples of the Lord's table and the example of Israel and their feasts in the Old Testament is that if you eat meat at a religious ceremony or feast, you worship the spiritual reality to whom the meal is intended. In other words, eating at religious rituals equals worship. And so the Corinthians asked the question, Paul, can we eat meat in an idol temple? It's being offered to sacrifice to idols. And what do you think his answer is going to be? No way. Flee idolatry. What they're doing there in the idol temple in Eden is worship. In verses 19 through 21, he gives another important consideration still in this scenario. And the important new idea that he weaves into this text that he has not said to this point in 1 Corinthians is that pagan worship exalts demons. So look with me at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols are anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that with the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verses 19 through 21, Paul states that demons stand behind the worship associated with these idols. 
You remember what Paul said in chapter 8 about idols and meat? I think he was agreeing with some of the Corinthians when he said, you want idols? They're nothing. Block of wood, animate block of stone, meat, that's nothing. Animal protein, they're nothing. And I think that that would be the point that he'd be intending in the, with the question that he gives in this passage, verses 19 through 29. Do, do you really think I'm implying that the little wood carving is anything? Or the block of meat is anything? No, that's not his point. But the new point he adds is, but what you need to understand is that demonic beings stand behind the false worship associated with these objects and with that meat. And so uh, in, in these verses, he gives us this, this alarming, important consideration. Demons are the spiritual reality behind the worship of pagan idols. Consequently, Paul points out that you cannot be a partaker of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And it leads him to two final warnings in verse 22. Don't you love the brevity and strength of these warnings? First question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And stronger brother, consider going down in there eating the meat. You're going you're to sit down and you're going to worship demonic beings and then you're going to come the next day to the Lord's table. Are you trying to provoke God to jealousy? Is that what you're doing? You know, are you like a bride who cheats on her husband only to get his attention? Provoke some sort of righteous jealousy? Is that what you're doing? You're trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or the next question. Are you stronger than him, than he? Or are you stronger than God? Is that why you're doing this? I mean, do you think you can take God? You think you can defeat him? Is that why you're insisting on going to the idol temple and eating meat that they're using to worship demonic beings? You will be at odds with the Lord if you continue provoking him to jealousy. So being at odds with the Lord, do you think you can take him? Verse 22. Verses 14 through 22 is a section that forbids eating idol meat in an idol temple because it involves false worship. The principle established for us is we must reject all forms of false worship. That's the principle. But how we apply that principle can be quite difficult, can it not? And so what I'd like to do for a moment is lead you through considering how does this impact me and the way I view other religions for a moment. Now, have you ever wanted to visit a different church just to th- see how things were done there? I think in some ways that's a natural type of curiosity. But I want to consider this question for a while, and, and I want to deal with different types of churches. Uh, I think the principle that is established in this text, we must reject all forms of false worship, helps us especially approach pagan religions where they worship false gods. And I think the answer is an easy one based off of this text. So should we go to religious ceremony where people are worshiping a false god and participate? I think this text would teach very directly. We, we do not join in with them. 
We do not join in their sacrificial feasts or their offerings because they're worshiping a different God entirely. This is how we should treat Islam or Hinduism or other false religions who do not worship the same God. So you go on some mission experience and you want to get this cultural experience and you find out that people are worshiping in a form of animism where they're worshiping some spirit or whatever. I think this principle would tell us, you know, don't, don't go in there just for the experience. You can't participate with them in this sort of thing and be unaffected. So Paul says, don't go into the idol meat and eat, or idol temple and eat the idol meat. They're worshiping God. Or they're worshiping their God in that way. So don't join them. We should not, out of curiosity, visit, visit one of these religious gatherings claiming to be above or beyond false worship as if we would be unaffected by it. But we should invo- avoid it entirely. But I think this principle also, also gives us guiding principles for something like going to a Catholic Mass or participating in a communion at a Catholic service. And I've been asked this question by a lot of very well-meaning believers in Jesus Christ. And I think it is a little bit, I think it's a little bit more difficult question. Okay, we're applying here. We're thinking about how this principle, how verses 14 through 22, impact us. Okay, and as we think about this sort of experience, going to a Catholic mass or participating in communion at a Catholic church, I think it's a bit harder because Catholics speak of the same triune God. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the message, their message of the gospel is very different than ours, isn't it? They do not preach Christ alone grace alone, scriptures alone. And so someone who really believes that salvation is possible through works, not on the basis of Christ, is not a genuine believer. Thus, how should we feel about joining in a religious ceremony or feast with scores, scores and scores of unbelievers? And I think the principle here would, would, would resonate. It, I think this scripture would, would tell us it's best to refrain. There is a natural form of curiosity in, in most of us about other religions and how they worship. And I'll say this, I think it's one thing to go to a different church with like different music or different standards or different traditions or different styles of preaching. It's another thing to go to a church outside of Protestantism or Christianity itself. Demons energize false worship. And we must avoid participation with false worship. Paul's first principle is this. Sometimes restraint is necessary. And his answer to the Corinthians, can I go down to the idol temple and eat meat there? Paul's answer is no. Okay, we got that? Let's move on to the second part. We're only going to get through two of these tonight. We'll cover the next one next week. A second, we learned that other situations aren't threatening. Verses 23 through 26 take place in the marketplace. And again, if you mark in your Bible, I encourage you to put brackets around these verses and write idle temple by verses 14 through 22, marketplace by verses 23 through 26, and then for you to put home of an unbeliever by verses 27 through 30. But in verses 23 through 26, 
the situation here changes once you're outside of the temple. This next situation occurs in the marketplace at Corinth, and Paul's answer is different. Here he allows believers to eat the meat because it originally came from God. As we look down in the text, I divide the text into two parts. The first part is what I call a, a, a principle that Paul's giving to them, and the principle is you must prefer others over yourself. So look down with me at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. First here, Paul says, all things are lawful. Remember hearing this before in chapter 6? He actually made this statement in chapter 6 two times as well, and here he repeats it twice. I suggested back at that time there are different ways to take the phrase, all things are lawful. Uh, Some people will use the verse as a kind of moral license saying that believers have all sorts of different freedoms. Not many people do this. But you know, all things are lawful. We can do what we want. Whereas most people will say one of two other ideas. Some will say that Paul is repeating a Corinthian slogan. So, you say, all things are lawful for me. But I say, all things are not helpful. You Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me, but I say, not everything builds other people. And it may be with all the Corinthian slogans in the letter that that's the right view. But uh, the way I kind of take it is that uh, what he's doing here is he's, agreeing with them that they're not bound or under the law of Moses. Paul might be saying that they were not under the the regulation of the Mosaic law. They were, however, under something else. You remember even going back to the parenthesis in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, although I'm not under the law, I'm not lawless, but I'm bound by the law of Christ. Remember that teaching? Nod your head if you're still awake. Okay, all right, good. Okay, so it may be that Paul's saying we're not under the law, but grace still motivates us to do things that are helpful to other people down in the marketplace and to do things that edify others, not ourselves, in the marketplace. And actually what Paul's attempting to say in verse 23 might be a little unclear, but I think verse 24 brings clarity to it. So look down in your Bible, verse 24, he says, do not seek your own advantage, but that of others. Even in the marketplace, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers to pursue love. There's a reason I took that as a theme for the entire book. Pursue love. Okay, so as he's going to talk and answer their question about, can we buy idol meat down in the idol temple? The first thing he says, verse 23 and 24, just remember, not everything you do even down there is going to help people or build them up, and you need to seek the good of others, not the good of yourself. Minds us a little bit of Philippians chapter 2, doesn't it? Seeking the welfare of other believers. But that leads Paul to a concession in verses 25 and 26, or a permission And uh, the way I would understand verses 25 and 26, I'd use this phrase. I think Paul is encouraging the Corinthians that they can function normally in the marketplace. 
you can function normally down there. Look at verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So here he's saying you can function normally in society when compromise is not involved. Although practicing Jews would find no freedom to go down into the meat market and buy meat there. In Orthodox Jews, this meat would be tainted. There would be no way. It wasn't even slaughtered in the proper Jewish ceremonial way. It wasn't kosher. Paul says that believers in Jesus Christ can eat this meat. Meat in the market. They can buy it and eat it. One of the reasons I think they'd be attracted to this meat is because it was cheap meat. Uh, as I've said before in classes, I taught on this for a while. I say the idol meat was like, it was like the, the Aldi meat of the first century. Okay? It was the cheap meat. It was discounted. Already been offered to idols. They bring it from the idol temple. They bring it over to the market. It's going to expire soon, so let's offer a discount on this. Or it's, it's like food past its expiration date. You're like, oh... Should I do this? Okay, I'm going for it. It's cheaper. So believers are asking, can they eat this meat or not? And so Paul's answer is they can eat this meat because fundamentally now, all meat is clean. The book of Acts told us that. All meat is is clean. We're no longer bound by mosaic legislation when it comes to meat. And then two, you can eat this meat. And this is what's in this text right here. Because God is the original source of the meat. So the reason Paul gives the Corinthian believers for why they can eat this idle meat or buy it at, at, down at the market and eat it is, the text says, for. Verse 24. Verse 24 says, for. Is, it, is that right? Verse 24. 26. Verse 26. For. Sometimes when you see the word for, the author of Scripture is given a reason. So many times when you see that little word for, it means a lot. He said, here's a reason I have that you can go ahead and get this meat. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you've got marks in your Bible that mark citations or quotations of the Old Testament, you will recognize that Paul is quoting his scripture again, the scripture. And the verse that he uses is Psalm 24 and verse 1. That's, that's what that phrase, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, one of the commentaries I was reading in the last week or two here, in the last, actually in the last few months, his name is Ben Witherington, and he brings out a very interesting observation about that, that verse, Psalm 24.1, and using it here. Witherington said, he said, there may be some irony in Paul's use of Psalm 24.1 here, since this passage was used by rabbis who argue that one must say the blessing over each meal a blessing they would only say over kosher foods. Okay, so what Witherington says is, uh, if you were a Jew at this time, you would know Psalm 24 very, very well because the rabbis would use it frequently as they would pray a prayer of blessing over the kosher foods that they were going to partake, partake in here. Its function in our text, though, is to remind the Corinthian believers of the original source of the food. It originally came 
from God, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All of creation is his. All of this food originally comes from God anyway. So, you can go ahead and buy and eat meat down at an idol temple. You can function normally in society when there is no compromise involved. In other words, the Corinthians don't need to ask about the origins of the meat. They don't have to give the third degree treatment to the person selling the meat. Where'd you get this? Where'd this come from? It smells a little bit like the temple. Did you get it over there? Paul says, don't ask, buy, and eat. And so these passages teach us to be flexible. Paul's answers are different for different locations. Men and women, when there's no theological compromise involved, we must be willing to be flexible. And what I find normally in church ministry is that's not normally the problem. Like, we all like to be flexible in the own way that we think to be right. But where it becomes difficult for us is where there are other believers who are flexible in ways that we don't necessarily care for. And so I think one of, the, one of the values of working through this text and seeing Paul's different answers about the different scenarios is, one, we, it, it, it finally begins to sink in that, you know what, living the Christian life is actually a difficult thing. And using the five or six principles that he gives us here, like a filter or a grid, for our personal decisions in Christ might mean that maybe some of us don't always come to the exact same practice. Hopefully, the more we use the filter, the more we'll look alike. But it may be that as some people apply principles of Christian liberty to difficult, controversial issues and decisions, that they look a little bit different than we do. And so while we must be flexible ourselves in the way we treat the lost, we don't want to compromise. We don't want to sin. But we need to be flexible. The truth is we also need to allow other believers in the assembly to be flexible. I think this principle is important for a grace church. A grace church. This is, this is how you described yourself before I ever got here. I came here for two reasons primarily, other than all of the, you know, the beautiful faces uh, in the church. One, you are a text church. Week after week, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, it's the word of God. That's what we're going to give to people. And two, you're a grace church. Grace church, not one that abuses grace. Not one that abuses grace, but one that understands, you know, the Christian life is sometimes complex and difficult. We find ourselves in all sorts of different scenarios and situations, and someone in the assembly might be, might be handling something that you've never experienced or handled before. And so foundationally, I think a grace church is one that is trusting of each other. It's trusting. When I see a believer in Jesus Christ who knows Christ as their Savior, who's made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I think Romans 8 would tell me that God is committed to their spiritual growth, that they will grow. There'll be times of failure and falling and so on, but the spectrum will continue to climb. They will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, or Christ will do something about that. 
And so what that helps me to see is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I need to be trusting of other believers. But then if I've got a question about their practice, I think a grace church would also mean that we question them. We love them enough to ask them, why are you behaving in such a way? Instead of running to other people in the assembly, finding anyone that will listen and say, do you believe so-and-so went to that place? How in the world could they ever do that? No, Grace Church that understands this principle would be trusting and loving of other people in the assembly. And if you have a question about the way someone is applying principles of Christian liberty to a scenario, I think you have a biblical responsibility to go and to ask them questions out of love. That's Grace Church. As we go through this principle, as we go through this text, I trust that God will teach us these things. So if you're in an idol temple, Paul's answer is no, don't eat it there. But if you're down to meat market, function normally. Don't give third degree treatment to the, the guy selling the meat. Buy and eat, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let's go and pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this text of Scripture. Lord, there's much within the text. One of the applications we made was about false worship. Lord, sometimes I believe that we are naive. We're naive as a people when it comes to thinking of paganism or false worship where people gather week after week or day by day and they do not know Jesus as their Savior. They're unbelievers. I think sometimes we're simple and naive when it comes to false worship. And yet what you demonstrate to us in verses 14 through 22 is it's nothing, nothing to mess around with at all. The command is flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Do not partake in the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And so, Lord, first of all, I would pray that you'd protect our church, protect our believers, protect us from the guise of false worship, protect us from the demonic influence associated with false worship. And Lord, may we not even want to mess with it, honoring the principles of this text. And then, Lord, as we looked at verses 23 through 26 and how to function in society where there are compromises involved, you say you can buy the meat and the meat market and eat it there. I pray, Lord, that we learn from that as well. Paul's answers were different for different places. May we be willing to be flexible in matters of Christian liberty as we struggle to be in the world but not of it. And Lord, may we as well be able to extend that to other people within the assembly and either trust them or out of love question them about their practices instead of running to gossip or to complain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.